Good morning, church. Would you join me in thanking uh, Joseph and the worship and praise team this morning? Amen. Sometimes we just got to hold on, right? Amen. Well, good morning, church. How are you this morning? Great. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm great, too. Well, church, how's your summer been? Hot. Yeah, it has been hot, Miss Pearlie. I agree. But good. Everyone have a good summer? Yeah. Good. Well, it has been a full summer, hasn't it? This has been our first summer in our new building, and it has been such a joy this summer. We've had things from uh, VBS, our first VBS here at Sanctuary that we've hosted. We've had Chick. We've had Sweat Equity. We've had workshops and flow here. We have so many connections that we've had this summer. It has been a good summer. Amen? It's a good summer. Yeah. Well, my name is Pastor Rose. I serve as the Associate Pastor of Family Ministry here at the Sanctuary. Um, and we are in a series this uh, morning, in, the, in this time right now, called Threshold, Living Faithfully in Between. And, and it has been such a joy so far, hasn't it? Amen. We've had amazing words from Pastor Edrin, and I hope that we continue to live faithfully in between in the season we're in. Because just three weeks ago, we celebrated the amazing six years of fruitful ministry of Pastor Dennis Edwards, our senior pastor. And we sent him and Susan off as they moved to uh, the Chicago area while he uh, takes a full-time job teaching at Northern Seminary. And we are just so grateful again to them and their ministry. And so, amen. So we intentionally named this series Living Faithfully in Between because as pastors, we don't want to miss the opportunity that we have in this time of growth and transition. And we don't want to miss that opportunity because we do believe that we can grow in this season, in this in-between time. Now, the image of threshold is very purposeful for us. We named this series intentionally because practically speaking, we know that a threshold is that, is that long strip on the bottom of a doorway. It's that space where you cross when you enter into a house or a doorway. It's this image that evokes this space that is a space of in-between. It's a space from one place to another. And, and it's not quite where you were before, but you're not quite where you're going. You haven't quite arrived where you'll end up. A threshold is a space in the middle. So this image of a threshold really marks where we are in our life together, isn't it? This, this um, image of a threshold, though, has a deeper meaning than just where we are. This meaning um, can be broadened when we look at the imagery and how it can shape our life together. Because medically speaking, there's a different way to look at the term threshold. Now, medically speaking, the, the term threshold informs our life together even deeper. Because medically speaking, a threshold is the point at which an effect begins to be produced. It's the point where something actually affects a change. 
So a threshold doesn't simply state the season that we're in, that's part of it, but it also informs how we are to act and how are we to be developed in this season. So this morning, church, we are going to look at the story in the person of Esther in the Old Testament. We see that Esther is the heroine of this book uh, that was named after her, and her story is one where we see that transformation is possible in transition. Transformation is possible in a time of transition. And we'll see in her story that, that we aren't just meant to simply wait for what's next. Instead, we are meant to be transformed, to see that transformation can happen while we are in this time of transition together. So let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for your presence that's here with us this morning. We can feel it. We know it, Lord, and we are so grateful. God, as we look at the story in the person of Esther this morning, Lord, I ask that you would help us to see that you want us to be transformed in this season. You don't want us just to coast by, just to wait and wonder, but God, you are asking us to be formed, to be transformed even in this middle space that we're in, Lord. So God, I ask that you would allow your words to speak through me. I ask that you would be with us to help us to be attuned to what your word says, and Esther, and Lord, may we see encouragement in her story this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, church, would you open your Bibles? We're going to read from Esther chapter 4 this morning. So turn to Esther chapter 4, or you can look on the screen, and this is our passage for this morning. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Enter it. In every province to which the edict was of the order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. So Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, 
um, has but one law, um, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed and since, and I have, uh, since I've been called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance of the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent a reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now, our text for today describes this great drama of Esther. And if we know her story at all, it's most likely this part of her story, which is so well known. But this part of of her story is simply one, um, one facet. It's simply just the pinnacle of Esther's life. Because Esther did not always sit in a place of royalty as the queen. In fact, she herself was an orphan. She was in a great time and and time and space of distress and danger for her and her people, the Jews. So the book of Esther is one that's set in Persia. Now it's during the exile of the Jews, which meant that the Jews were scattered all about. They were separated from one another. And Esther and her people were under the rule of a foreign power, the Persian Empire. This was a threshold season in the story of the Jewish people. They found themselves in the middle. Now, the book of Esther um, does not begin with our main character, but it begins with the character of Queen Vashti. Now, Vashti was the Persian queen at the time. She was married to um, King Ahasuerus, which we'll probably know, um, recognize more um, as Xerxes, which is in the Greek. And the king had ordered Vashti to come and appear before him, the king, and all of his other male leaders. And all of them were drunk, and they were demanding that she display herself for all the men who were there. She was very well known for her beauty, But Queen Vashti refused. And this made the king furious. And because he was humiliated in front of all of his friends, he removed her from her position as the queen. So there's this vacancy for the queen. So with the vacancy of the queen, the king ordered that there would be a nationwide kind of a beauty contest of sorts. And the king would choose for himself a new queen. And this is when we meet Esther. Now, I have two daughters, and it has always been my desire to uplift and to show women of the Bible who who are bold and lead in their faith in amazing ways. And I want them to grow and see these strong and true representatives of, of biblical women in their faith. 
So when my oldest daughter, when she was around, um, probably about a toddler, um, I decided to buy a board book of Esther. And it was a board book that just had simple one word, fra- um, one word on every single page. And I bought this board book and I opened it up. And what do you think the first adjective was to describe Esther? Beautiful. Yes, beautiful. Esther was well known for her beauty. She's also known for other things as well, but she's often known for her beauty. So the king has this this beauty pageant, this contest of sorts. And though I do want to say that it's not like a beauty pageant now where you sign up in your own free will, Esther had no option to do this. This was not something that was optional for the women in that area. Esther had no voice or no agency in this decision. The king was only looking for someone who was beautiful, a beautiful woman who would please him, specifically sexually. So Esther was simply an object to the king. So the king sees Esther and, and, and he is overcome by her beauty. And so he chooses her to be the king, the queen. And since Esther was an orphan, um, she was um, raised by her cousin Mordecai, who we see so often in the story. And Mordecai told her, do not tell the king that you are a Jew. And so she kept this from him, and he was unaware of this. So eventually, um, so now she's queen. Um, Eventually, one of the king's leaders, Haman, is offended by something that Mordecai does. So Haman asks Mordecai to bow down before him, and um, Mordecai refuses. And Haman, in a great rage, decides that he is going to kill all of the Jews. And so he prepares this edict, he even chooses a date, and he is ready to annihilate all of the Jewish people. Now, because, again, the Jews were in this middle space, this this season of exile, In their status, in being in the exile, they had absolutely no power and no leverage over this decision that was made. And they are seen simply as goods to profit from. In fact, even in our text, it said that they were to profit from uh, the Jews' destruction. The king would gain, in fact, 68% of the total revenue of the Persian Empire if the Jews were destroyed And then the king would gain all of their possessions. They were seen as something to profit from. Now, up until this point, the majority of the story has focused on Mordecai. But here in the story, here in our verse for this morning, is where it shifts. There's a shift that is made, and now the focus is on Esther. Now the story is being told from her point of view as Mordecai tells her about the fate of their people. Here is where our passage comes in this morning. Mordecai is overwhelmed by grief. He urges Esther to do something in her position. But again, because of the exile, because of her status under the king, she feels completely powerless She feels she has no ability to see any possibility of transformation in this season. Over and over, she doubts that anything could be done to stop this. But we see in our passage that something changes. 
Whether it's Mordecai's well-known um, urge to see her role as the queen for such a time as this, or maybe it's because of some sort of internal um, shifting that happens, we see something changes. Something shifts in her plight of, of despair reverses to a vision of hope. The limitations of her exile status reverses as an opportunity for transformation. Esther decides to go to the king. She decides that there will be this dinner that's held where repayment is present, and she reveals this plan that the Jews will be destroyed. And the king is enraged, but not with Esther, not with the Jewish people. He is enraged at Haman, and then he declares that he, Haman, will be put to death instead. The Jews are delivered from their certain death. Haman is killed. And this annual Jewish feast is, is in, um, is, that begins called Purim, and it celebrates the Jews' deliverance from their enemies. And then we see also that Mordecai is elevated to a, a position of power, in the, in, um, and that's what helps um, the Jews in the Persian Empire. But friends, as we look at the story of Esther this morning, there are a few aspects that, that are very important for us in our season of threshold. The first is Esther and the Jews were living in a time of transition as exiled people. And Esther shows us that transformation is possible in times of transition. Now, there's so much we could talk about, about, um, about in, the, in regards to the, the context and the culture of, of this book. Um, we could even talk so much about Esther herself. She's a very textured character in, the, in this book because of her culture, because of her status. But I want to focus on three prominent characteristics this morning. Three prominent characteristics about Esther, and that is first, her limitations— her isolation, and her despair. Now, when I was growing up, um, this time of year, towards the end of the summer, was my absolute favorite time of the year. Now, for me, it meant that um, I got to go back to school shopping. I got to like line up all my school supplies and put them in my backpack, and I was all ready for the first day of school. Like I loved getting ready for a new school year when I was little. And I was always so excited. And you can even see a picture of me when I was in kindergarten. Maybe, there we go. <laughs> and I look at this picture and I mean, so many memories come back of course, but, but I look at this picture and I'm just in awe because my oldest daughter is now the same age um, that I was in that picture. And she herself is going to start kindergarten in just a few weeks. I'm so excited for her. And in preparing for her um, new, uh, new school journey in kindergarten, uh, this past week we got uh, a letter in the mail from her school. And in the, uh, in the letter, of course, it had things like, you know, what her schedule might be each day, um, a welcome um, to the school. But then, of course, it had her school supplies. And inevitably, I was filled again with that same excitement that I had as a child. So excited to go school shopping with her um, and, and, and be ready for this new adventure that lie ahead of her. 
But in reading uh, through the list, I was once again reminded of the difficult reality it is to be a public school teacher. Now, because the list that I was given was not so much a, a list of school supplies that my daughter would have in her backpack, though it did include some of those, but a majority of the supplies that were listed were for the teacher's classroom or for the front office. It were things like staple items like a ream of paper, like things like that. Now, of course, I am more than eager to buy all the supplies that my school needs. I want to partner with her teacher. I want to support her on this journey. I want to be um, a support for our Minneapolis public schools. And I want to be that partner with her teacher in her classroom. But again, it highlighted the limitations that are placed on our teachers. The limitations of not enough funding for teaching to a standardized test, from developing the whole child with their vast amount of needs to the low salaries that they get. It, it, it includes things like grading papers and lessons plans that are at home, uh, uh, you know, apart from their paid time at work, to the pressing constraints around them, and all the and recent job cuts as well. Our educators are often limited by those constraints. And it's frustrating because these are amazing teachers, aren't they? And I may be biased, but I believe that we have some of the top public school teachers in the Twin Cities. And you can see some of their pictures up here. Um, these are all men and women who have dedicated their vocation to enriching the lives of our children and, and our youth. And we recognize, yes, we recognize them. And we recognize them. We also recognize that they have confining limitations that are placed on them. And it makes their job difficult. Now, I know I have missed someone, so I'm sorry. But, but aren't they amazing? Good-looking folks? Yes. And next Sunday, um, we will have a dedicated time in our service to pray. We are going to pray for our administrators, our educators. We are going to pray for our children as they begin a new school year. We're going to specifically bless our kindergartners as they begin their academic journey. And we're going to give them a Bible so that guides them in their academic journey. So I hope that you're going to join us for that celebration. Many of these teachers have even, in the exhausting limitations around them, they have served faithfully here. They have served faithfully for many years in both Royal Hood and Mosaic. They have enriched our family ministry in huge and uh, in clear ways. So if you want to get to know them, if you want to learn from them, I want to encourage you to sign up. I want to encourage you to sign up to serve in either Royal Hood or Mosaic because you will learn so much from them. I have learned so much in, in what it means to disciple the next generation from all of these educators. So as we look at Esther this morning, as we look at her story, we also see that she was confined by her limitations. We, sh we see that she, she saw and she knew what needed to be done in rescuing the Jews, but she felt overwhelmed by the limitations that were placed on her. Some of her limitations included first that she was a Jew, 
Again, during living in the exile meant that it was dangerous for her to reveal her identity as a Jew. She had no religious freedom. She couldn't practice her faith. She also couldn't share her ethnic heritage. She was limited. Second, we see, of course, that Esther was a woman. Now, women uh, were second-class citizens at best during this time. She had no power and very little agency. Specifically, as the king, um, uh, queen over the king, um, she was seen again as his property. And even more lewd than that, as simply a sexual object to him. Third, we see that the king was very particular. In verses 11, Esther states that, that the king would not allow her to approach him unless the king called for her. Otherwise, she'd be put to death. She couldn't even approach him to speak with him. And because it says in that verse that because he had not called for her in 30 days, Esther was sure that the king was upset with her. So Esther felt limited in her situation. And those limitations we see um, really revealed her second characteristic was that she became isolated. Now, when I came to Sanctuary um, a, a little over eight years ago now, uh, my husband and I had moved from Southern California, and we were so excited for this new adventure to serve at Sanctuary. Um, we had lived before in Ecuador, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, and, and it was so exciting to think of a new city and a new possibility, and we certainly felt called to, to serve in a church community like Sanctuary. And while Sanctuary was a great fit for us, for the first few years, it felt really isolating. Now, uh, while you would assume that, that I, I would have been you know, very well com connected, meeting so many people, which I was, but I, but I wasn't making deep connections with anyone. I didn't have any close connections and relationships with people yet at the sanctuary. And it wasn't until 2012 when I was pregnant with our first daughter, the one who's now going to go to kindergarten, <laughs> uh, that we joined a life group. And there were two other young families who were also having their first daughter at the same time, and they asked us to join their life group. And it was because of that life group that I began to grow in deeper connection and relationship at Sanctuary. It was through our honest and authentic conversations about becoming a parent where I could become more open with others. It was in serving alongside one another that we began to trust one another. And I began to, to um, dive into what it really meant to live into a multi-ethnic community. Before joining a life group, I was surrounded by people, but I wasn't known by people. We can be surrounded by a, a sea of people here at Sanctuary and still be isolated. Deeper connection and deeper growth happens more fully in community. And I experienced that connection and that growth through a life group. So if you're not in a life group yet, I want to encourage you to find one. In September, we're going to launch our life groups, and I want to encourage you to sign up for one. Because no doubt, that, was a, that is a clear way you can move out of isolation and into community. So looking back at Esther, um, we see that she was isolated as well. Now first we see that she was literally and physically isolated from her people. 
Because she was the queen in the Persian Empire, she lived obviously with the king. And she, her people in the, lived all throughout the city, all throughout the region, and they were scattered about. And verses one through four really highlights her isolation. Mordecai is mourning in the city. He's wearing those sackcloth. Um, Esther hears about this, and her strange response in, in, in verse four is to send Mordecai clothes. Now this is where the disconnect is. She is so physically removed from Mordecai that, that her closest relative, that she doesn't even know what's going on. She is isolated from her people. Esther is also isolated emotionally. Being limited in her role, seen, being seen as property of the king, she's isolated from the needs and the life of her community. Esther was in, unable to affect any change because of her isolation. And because of that, we see her third characteristic. Her third characteristic, which is her perspective of great despair. Now, looking at this third characteristic of Esther's story, this is a deep and emotional one. Now, while I don't want to extrapolate too much from the text and, 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 and what she may have felt in this, it is clear that she had a perspective fixed on despair. To Esther, d destruction and death were imminent. It was absolutely going to happen. She was filled with this anxious despair at the thought of, of even trying to free her people, trying to feel free herself. She was in a space where it felt hopeless and helpless. And now Esther's helplessness was exacerbated. And when we look at the Hebrew word that is used over and over again in, in describing Esther, this word is taken. So throughout the book, Esther is described in this helpless way as being taken. She's taken from one place to another. She's taken here, she's taken there. She's being taken to the king. This passive voice shows that she, up until now, Esther has been submissive. She's been submissive, submissive to the powers, to the limitations around her, and she views has herself as having no voice no agency, no power, no ability for any transformation. But friends, in verses 15 and 16, everything changes. There is this powerful reversal that changes the entire story. It changes Esther's role. It changes the entire context of the Jews' despair in this time of exile. And what changes is what I want to call a holy reversal. Now, this is ho a holy reversal. It's holy because only God can make something out of the situation that she's in. And it's clearly a reversal because it literally changes everything, everything that was seemingly possible to Esther. This holy reversal now takes limitations and turns it to possibilities. It takes lonely isolation and reverses it to a powerful community. And it takes anxious despair and it reverses it to the certain hope. Church, do you see ourselves in this story this morning? Do you see this community that is in transition? They are in exile. They are looking for what is to come. They are knowing that, that God that has something for their future, but they're not quite there yet. 
this community is one that is wondering what is ahead, what is next for us. They are a community that is striving to follow God in this unknown time. This is a community where, where God has not asked the Jewish people simply to survive, but to, be, to, but to thrive, to be transformed. So church, do you see us in this story this morning? Or more importantly, church, do you hear God's word for us in this story and in this season? We see through the agency of Mordecai that Esther reverses this confined reality of despair into this future hope. We see this future possibility. And Esther, we see that transformation is possible in a season of transfer and transition. And specifically, we see that transformation is possible in transition through these holy reversals. Now, Sanctuary Esther shows that, that we can take our limitations and we can reverse them into possibilities. That we can take our, our isolation and we can reverse them into a beloved community. That we can take any despair that we might have and we can reverse it into a certain hope. Now, it would be easy for us. It would be easy for us to see in this transition time a perspective of, of despair. As a time to isolate ourselves from one another, to see the ways that this transition time limits us. But from the story of Esther, we see clearly that God, that God doesn't want us simply to survive until our next senior pastor, that God wants us to thrive in this season and to thrive with a certain hope, a certain hope that God is faithful, a certain hope that God wants us to be transformed, a certain hope that we can impact change in our community even now, and a certain hope that we are better together in community. Amen. So as we begin to wrap up this morning, I want us to look at the graph that we've been looking at in this series so far. This tool that has helped us to faithfully process this transition season that we're in together. Now when you think of this season that we're in communally, it might be um, something to apply there, but it might be also an individual season of transition that you find yourselves in this morning. This is a tool that we wanna use to pray to guide us in our prayer, to guide us in our study of scripture, and to guide us to live out these daily truths in our season of transition. Now these truths are that God is trustworthy. That God is trustworthy. In Esther we see that God was trustworthy to deliver the Jews, to be faithful to them. We see that God wants the best for us. In Esther's story, we see clearly that, that Mordecai is urging Esther to act for the best interest of the Jews. And finally, while it didn't seem as though Esther had the agency to actually use the gifts she had to affect change, to make a different way out of what was seeming what was there, we see that there is this holy reversal. We see that there is a reversal that allowed her to serve her people, allowed her to, to break out of the limitations that she had. So I hope, church, that we will look at the story of Esther this week, that we will meditate on it, that we will see the holy reversals in this story and see all the ways that God is prompting us 
to see a vision of despair and reverse it to something, to a vision of hope, to take our limitations and to see where something is possible, to see where these holy reversals are waiting in our own lives. So this morning, church, we get to participate in in an act of holy reversal, in an act of holy reversal through communion. Now we see in the Last Supper that Jesus and his disciples, he surrounds himself with his disciples. He takes this common practice of the Passover meal and he turns it into a holy reversal. In the Gospel of John, Jesus um, begins this meal with this reversal of him being this rabbi, this, this person in power, not asking the disciples to wash his feet, but taking the place of a servant by reversing it and washing their feet. Also by taking the bread and the wine, he declares this new covenant, this new transformation, this new reversal of the old into something new. So as we prepare um, for communion this morning, I want to invite the band to come. We're going to prepare for this communal meal together. I also want to invite Pastor Mike to come as he shares in some of the logistics for this morning.